All right, James chapter 1. The word of God is essential in the life of a Christian. Essential is one of those words we throw around. Uh, We know what it means, but we don't maybe always think about what it means. But essential comes from the, the Latin word essence, which means being or the basic nature of something, which actually comes from a smaller word, S, E-S, which means to be. So literally it speaks of existence. So the essence of something is so basic and fundamental that to remove that particular thing means that what it was in no longer exists. It can't continue to exist because it's essential to its, its existence. Its essence is gone. To remove the word of God from Christianity would be the end of Christianity. In fact, if you could just take away all the Bibles in the world, all of a sudden, what would we do as Christians? We would recreate the Bible. Not in a new way, but in the way that we've had it handed down to us for thousands of years. We have enough people who have enough of it memorized. It's in enough quoted in enough books. It's on enough throw pillows and, and coffee cups. We could actually recreate the Bible in its form if all the Bibles, and we would want to do that, not because we need a list of rules to follow, but because the Word of God is how we connect to God. It's how we enjoy relationship with Him. It's how we know what it looks like to follow Him. It's how we know who He is. The Word of God is essential to who we are as Christians. This passage in James shows that as much as any passage in the Bible. So James chapter 1, beginning actually in verse 18, by his own choice he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror, for he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. We saw last week that God chose to give us birth in verse 18 through the word uh, who created a people who are radically different from the world. For example, we saw we are not a people driven by self-centered, prideful anger, sinful anger which never accomplishes God's righteousness. Is this working? Yeah, okay. Which never accomplishes God's righteousness. And living that out makes a tremendous difference in how we live and enjoy life and relationships. But James continues in verse 21 with a therefore. If we're going to be a people who don't live expressing or letting sinful human anger build, we have to have an even deeper relationship with the word. And you could even see this passage as a very basic understanding of what it means to live like a disciple or follower of Jesus. This could be like a Christianity 101 passage. So four things we'll walk through. Number one, a disciple or follower of Jesus is someone who repents of sin. First we see a disciple of Jesus is someone who's repenting of sin. Verse 21, the language is ridding ourselves, which is like taking off a dirty set of clothes. What sins? Well, he doesn't name them, but he says, 
moral filth and prevalent evil, evil that is prevalent. Sin makes us dirty. Sin is evil and sin is prevalent. It infects every part of who we are. Now, we don't see it all the time because we, we've given sin softer names. You know, it's just my bad habit. It's just my weakness. It's just kind of something I struggle with. We don't see it as equal to the fact it took one sin in the garden to, to infect all of creation with sin, to completely change the way the entire world worked, just one sin. And we don't think about that every time we sin. Like every sin we commit is that by itself deserving of God's wrath. We, we just kind of minimize sin. Or we don't see our sin because we've done a really good job of comparing ourselves to the right people. We don't compare ourselves to the really great people, but we pick the right people. And, well, I'm not that bad, so I'm a pretty good person because I'm not like them. We do a good job of comparing ourselves. And we're absolute experts at sin justification. I've earned, I deserve, it's okay, no one knows, it doesn't seem to be hurting anyone, Jesus still loves me, I'm tired, I'm stressed, life is hard, don't you know all I've been through? We play all these games to justify our sin while the same sins continue to make us filthy and they continue to spread like unchecked weeds in a garden, becoming prevalent in our life. Even in a church like the Crossing, well, Jesus has forgiven me of all my sins, past, present, and future, so I just don't need to rest and enjoy his love, grace, and mercy that I've experienced, which is 100% true, please do that, but that's never intended to allow us to let our guard down against sin or to quit fighting against sin and ridding ourselves of sin. If your theology is so perfectly gospel-centered that it allows you to shrug your shoulders at your sins, you have bad theology. Your theology needs to be fixed. You're missing it. And one thing that might be off is you're not really engaging with God and His Word. So one reason you're not seeing your moral filth that you need to rid yourself of or the prevalent evil that's still a part of your life is because you're not engaging with God's Word. Secondly, a disciple or follower of Jesus is someone who, in humility, is receiving the implanted word. That's the second part of verse 21, which goes hand in hand with the first. In fact, to be more accurate, uh, receiving the word in humility actually precedes repentance. Because it's when we come face to face with the word of God and the character and nature of God that's in the word of God, that's when we realize we are, in fact, sinful. And we don't belong in the presence of a holy God. We, we need someone to help us outside of ourselves. And that's, that's what the word of God does in us. And this comes through receiving his word, the implanted word. We talked about this a little bit last week. How do we receive something that's already in us, implanted? Well, we, we looked at it submitting to, embracing, believing wholeheartedly this is true. And it's so true, I must act upon it. So imagine the difference between receiving a check from me for a billion dollars and receiving a check from Jeff Bezos for a billion dollars. Like if I gave you a check for a billion dollars, you'd be like, do I really have to hold on to this? Like what do you want me to do with this? Do you want it back? It has no more value than monopoly money. Like it's, you, you wouldn't even care about receiving a check from a billion dollars from me. But if, 
He received a check for a billion dollars from Jeff Bezos, the founder of a Amazon, the richest, one of the richest men in the world. Like you would help them open the bank up in the morning. Like how, how can I unlock this door for you? I can't wait to deposit this because that check has true power. You would believe in the power of that check, not my check, right? Believing in the word of God so much so that you receive it because you know it has power to accomplish these things that God desires to accomplish in us. And, and, and help us to accomplish this, ridding ourselves of moral filth, ridding ourselves of prevalent evil. It's a totally different reception. We receive the word in humility because we know and believe this is the word of God. And it has power to save, power to change us, power to help us, power that makes all the difference for life now and life forever. And so, because we really believe that, we're all in, plugged in, receiving, getting, submitting, yielding, letting the word do its work, which does include getting rid of moral filth and prevalent evil. This is a natural process when the word is in us, verse 18, when we've been made alive by the word and we're humbly receiving, believing, yielding to the word that's in us. This is the promised work of the implanted word spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah hundreds of years earlier when he was describing the new covenant. What would life be like for God's people one day when the Messiah would come? Jeremiah 31, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, talking about the Mosaic covenant, my covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them. And write it on their hearts, implanted word, I will be their God and they will be my people. The word of God now dwells in us. It's implanted in us because unlike the old covenant, the Old Testament, Mosaic law, when the spirit of God dwelt in the tabernacle in the temple, now we are the tabernacle in the temple as God's people. We are the temple where the spirit dwells. His word is implanted in us. His word is doing his work in us. And part of how this work looks is getting rid of moral filth and prevalent evil. That's what it's accomplishing. Getting rid of selfish, indulgent, sinful anger, for instance. Being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. And so this morning, if you're looking at your life and you're like, I, I don't, I'm struggling to see that happening. There could be a few reasons for that. One reason, it could be you're not alive in Christ Jesus. The word's not implanted in you. The spirit of God doesn't dwell in you because you haven't been made alive in Christ. You might be religious, but you're not born of God, born from above. We have to say this often in the Bible Belt culture because religion is so prevalent. Cultural Christianity is so strong. You can't hardly find anyone around here who would just outright say, I'm not a Christian. They're there, but it's hard to find them. Everyone just swims in the waters of cultural Christianity so that you begin to think you're a fish because you just, it's the air you breathe, it's the, 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 the smell you smell. Everyone's just kind of a Christian and you kind of go along. It's part of your life, maybe you grew up in your family or you've gone to enough church meetings or what have you. 
and it makes you think you are a Christian, but your heart has never really been changed by Jesus Christ. He's never really come in and made you a new person and taken away the old you or, or crucified the old you and seen this new you born into you because the, Christ, the life of Christ has moved in and taken up residence inside of you. And you could be here this morning, and you're hearing this, and you're, you're just like, I don't really care, man. How much longer until we, we're done? Which is great evidence that you're not his. And so my prayer for you would be, God, open your eyes and and help this person to see Jesus loves them and wants you to be his. But you could also be sitting here and, and hearing this, and the Spirit is at work. Like you feel this happening inside your soul right now, where, where the Spirit is calling you from death to life, from darkness to light. And he's like, I, I want to make you a new person. Will you trust me? Will you follow me? Will you believe in me? Will you turn from embracing sin and turn and embrace Jesus who died for your sins and rose from the dead? And today can be the day of your salvation. If, like, if that's happening in you, we would say, please tell us before you leave. Like, like talk to one of the elders, one of the people you see on stage. Anyone here practically could help you. Anyone, please tell us so we can begin to walk with you and, and, and show you what it looks like to follow Jesus. Another reason getting rid of moral filth and prevalent evil might not be showing up in your life and could be you are a genuine follower of Jesus, but your relationship with the Word, i.e. the Lord, has become so distant that you don't see or feel the Spirit and the Word at work in you in this season. He's with you. You can't get rid of Him. Romans 8. You, you can't get rid of Him, but right now you're more of a passive bystander than an active participant. And by God's grace, he's coming after you because he's a good dad who loves his kids. And he'll discipline you and he'll bring you back. And one day your eyes will be open and you will look back on this season and see, I can see where he was at work even then. Even when my heart was not warm toward him or affectionate toward him, I can even see him at work then. And by God's grace, he will get you there. And today might be the beginning, a spark, a, a, a flame that's reignited a passion that's turned back on that you haven't had for him and his word. And you leave here with more affection for him than you came. And deep down, if that's you, like deep down, you would admit, I really want that. But, but time and distance has piled up and you just, you just doesn't feel like you can get there again. But deep down in your soul, you would admit, I want that. I so want to enjoy him again, his sweet fellowship, feasting on his word, fighting against sin, trusting and believing him with bold faith to take bold steps of obedience. But none of this will happen apart from God's word at work in you. As you see him, as you're humbled, as you believe, as you receive what he has from you. So, so how do you know this is happening? Like, how do you know you're really humbly receiving the implanted word and doing this work. Well, that brings us to verse 22. Verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, he goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, 
but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. Probably the most famous passage in the book of James. This is the essence of what James is about. If you say you have faith, it will show up in what you do. So thirdly, a disciple, a follower of Jesus is someone who obeys the word, repents of sin, humbly receive the word, and they obey the word. If you say you have faith, you will obey the word. If you say you are a disciple or follower of Jesus, you will obey the word. Knowing the word is important. You have to know it to do it. Saying the right things has value. You should affirm certain things publicly, confessionally. But if you really believe it, you'll do it. Like you run into somebody you hadn't seen in a while and, hey, let's catch up. Let's get together. Let's, let's hang out. Like we all have those kind of conversations and sometimes it happens. Sometimes it doesn't. And the moment where you just lying to them, like, I don't really want to get together with this person. I'm just saying this to be nice. Well, maybe that might be what you were doing. But a lot of times we have good intentions. And we, we have, yes, I, w- I want to say this, and, but do you actually do it? Well, that would reveal that you really want to hang out with this person. A lot of discussion among the scholars about this analogy. Don't get lost in the weeds of the analogy that you lose the very basic exhortation. Hearing the word is, is important, but hearing without doing is worthless. It's as worthless as a man who looks in a mirror, and that encounter with the mirror is so inconsequential that when he walks away, he doesn't even remember what he looked like. And can you imagine? Our relationship with the word is to be described as looking intently, persevering, not forgetting, but remembering and obeying. This is not making a statement on how long you spend in the word. You've you got to spend long amounts of time in the word. This is making a statement on how impactful the word is on you. Is it just this inconsequential momentary encounter that you immediately forget? Or is it lasting? You carry it with you. You're you're remembering it, and it's affecting how you live your life. Jesus knew a group of men who had a very strong relationship with God's word while completely missing the point of the word. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, were famous for how well they knew the word, huge sections memorized, life spent discussing, debating the law and traditions they had developed, but literally, literally all for nothing. No point. Like there was no value in, in all that they knew on the word because they missed the point. He had his harshest words for them. Whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside because everyone respects you as religious leaders, but you're dead on the inside. Brood of vipers. Hypocrites. Cups that were clean on the outside, dirt on the inside. Like going to someone's house and you grab a coffee cup, that cup that was on top of the dishwasher that those little jets didn't get to. You pull out the dishwasher, it looks great on the inside, and there's this, I don't know what that is, caked on the inside. You're like, this stupid dishwasher. Like, these were these men, just disgusting when you realize who they really were on the inside. John 5, the Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time, and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you, implanted word, because you don't believe the one he sent, Jesus. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me, but you're not willing to come to me so that you may have this life. And we can do the same thing. We can knock out the Bible reading plans. We can check the box every day on version. We can read through the Bible every single year and yet be as worthless as a man who doesn't even remember his own face in a mirror if we don't obey. Persevere. 
look intently. In other words, it would be better to know less scripture that you actually obey than to know the entire word that you don't obey. It would be better to obey 1% of the Bible than to have the entire Bible memorized that you don't obey. Now, thankfully, we don't have to do that, make that choice, but plowing through the word without obeying, persevering, looking intently is worthless. It's not beneficial to you or others. A man or woman who is in engagement with God's word is no more life-changing than that brief morning facial examination in the mirror won't fully experience the work of God's word and God's people. They will go through seasons in which God feels distant. They will get cozy with sin. They will, their affection for Jesus will dry up. And over time, they could indeed prove they were never part of his kingdom anyway. They were just religious. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he knows the words of Jesus. Matthew 7, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. John 15, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Like maybe we're so concerned with dead religious legalism, it makes us leery of this emphasis on obedience, but we shouldn't be leery of because our obedience is driven by love. It's love-driven, gospel-driven obedience. Now certainly we fall into ruts in which it doesn't feel loving and it feels routine and ritualistic, which can be true like when this, this gathering on Sundays. Like maybe there's a bunch of Sundays where you show up here simply because it's expected of you. Or you have a job to do, like preach or lead in music. Like, oh, somebody's got to do it. I better go. And it feels ritualistic and routine. I'm, I'm really, my heart's not really in it. I'm not really driven by this great affection for Jesus. But you come, the word is proclaimed, the people of God are gathered, and the spirit does this work, and you leave with more affection for Jesus than you had when you showed up. Like, it happens to me every single Sunday. Thank you, Jesus, you're faithful to grow my affection for you. Once again, almost every Sunday. There's a few, right? Obedience sometimes looks like that. Like you're, you're doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do, but you're not just always like, yeah, I can't wait to wake up and read my Bible. But you do it, and Jesus meets you, and there's joy in, in the, the, the routine of gathering in his word and meeting with him in the word. And then there are mornings where it is, yes, this is, I can't wait to feast on the word. However, we want to work through motivations and intentions. And I would say, like, if, if it's just routine and it's never leading to affection, joy, worship, like, you need to dig deeper into why. Like, why is there, there this disconnect? There could be some, something definitely going on. But however we work through those motivations and intentions, we can never ever use that to make obedience optional obeying the word is never optional and anytime we come face to face with the word commands and we just shrug our shoulders and we go in another direction that's sin and so the word and the spirit have to go to work and help us once again get rid of the moral filth and the prevalent evil until we're back in this place of obedience but it does come 
and it will come and it will be experienced more and more the more we're looking intently, persevering and doing the word. The word will actually change us, change our hearts, change our minds, our affections so that over time we begin to want what God wants. And anyone who's walked with Jesus for any length of time, like they would tell you, like, I, I want things today that God wants that I, I can't say I wanted 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. I desire things today. I didn't desire when I first began following Jesus. Like he's literally changing you. We could go around the room giving examples. It's very common for new Christians to struggle with giving. Just maybe it seems weird, counterintuitive to how the world works. Maybe you give a little because you get a charitable deduction on your taxes, but giving generously and sacrificially and cheerfully to invest in spreading the gospel in the kingdom of Jesus, when gas is $4 a gallon and inflation is 8.6%, it's hard. I don't know how or why, but over time, what was hard becomes easy and even joyful as the word and the spirit changes your heart and mind, and we begin to value what God values and love what God loves. And yeah, it may mean we can't go to Starbucks uh, five days a week, maybe one day a week. Maybe we have to cancel Netflix subscription and piggyback somebody else's, uh, whatever it looks like, you have to sacrifice. You're like, I gladly sacrificed that. Where six months ago, you're like, no way, I'm never canceling Netflix. You're like, yes, of course I would to be able to, to give to what God wants me to give to. That's the word, doing the work, changing us as we persevere, dig in, look intently, and do, do the word. We've learned from others, and we've said from the beginning of the crossing that we want to be more known as a church that does the word than becoming a little Bible college. Like, we love the word. We love to understand it. We love to hear it taught and preached, but we don't really care to become a a church of theological eggheads just sitting around admiring each other's Bible-sized brains. Look how many books you've read. Look how many things you know. We could plan and organize more and more Bible studies. Churches are really good at that, but the only people that usually come are church people. You don't reach the lost. At some point, we might just be filling ourselves with more knowledge and not pushing ourselves to actually go live it out, which is why typical times that MCs gather, we're not doing another Bible study. We're having more conversations about how we apply and live out what we already know. So just an example, one section of Romans 9 verse that's been convicting me for a while now. Romans 9, 1 through 3. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul says, I would wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. You can dig into Romans 9 and figure out what Paul's talking about. Paul was in unceasing anguish and great sorrow that his fellow Jews would come to know Jesus as Messiah. So much so, he says, I would rather go to hell for them if they would come to know Jesus. There's background, there's all kinds of nuance, language study you could do, but at some point we need to ask, well, what about me? Like, do I love the people of our city this much? Do I love the people of our parish this much? Do I love the people of Louisiana this much? Do I love the people groups we're trying to reach in all the different places people have been sent this much? That it causes me unceasing anguish and great sorrow because right now they are headed toward Christless eternity. And is it driving my prayers? Is it driving 
my time, my energy, my resources, my focus. The fact that there are thousands, thousands of people in our parish who are not enjoying Jesus. They're just religious. They're not enjoying Jesus in their marriage, in their parenting, in their job, in their personal lives. They're just going through the motions and life is miserable because they don't know Jesus. How is that affecting how I live my life? I could, I could think on that for months and talk with brothers and talk with sisters and talk in missional communities. Okay, if I really feel this and believe this, how is it affecting how I live? And that's just three verses. Just three verses to become a doer of the word. Having God's heart for those far from him. How and why it's hard to break out of the cells of our self-indulgence to join God on his mission in our city. Why are we so afraid to share the gospel with people who are far from God? Why do we struggle with talking about the one we love the most? Fourthly, lastly, the disciple of Jesus experiences blessing, freedom, salvation. The work of God's word and God's people, we repent of sin, we humbly receive his word, we obey his word, and lastly, this leads to something. Several expressions scattered throughout the passage. Salvation, mentioned in verse 21, and then freedom and blessing, mentioned in verse 25. The salvation of our souls, souls there refers to, to the totality of who we are as people, and the salvation here is more future-oriented. So we've talked about this a lot, three aspects of salvation. James uses all three throughout his letter. You, you hear salvation talked about throughout the Bible. You can ask, is this talking about past, present, or future salvation? We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. We will be saved from the presence of sin. Justification, sanctification, glorification, if you want the fancy theological words. When you see this word salvation, ask those questions. It, they're all true. They're all at work at all times. Salvation, past, present, and future. But, but sometimes we need to be reminded of salvation past. We are justified in God's eyes through Jesus despite the fact we can still sin because we're wallowing in shame or guilt. Sometimes we need to be reminded of salvation pr present, that we are saved now from sin's power because we're struggling to overcome temptation and we're living in fear, feel trapped. And then sometimes we need to be reminded that we will be saved from sin's present if we're struggling to have hope. Because the world is so bleak, it doesn't feel like it's getting better. It feels like it's getting much worse. And, and, and we need to remind that salvation's coming. It's, and in this passage, it's future salvation. It's God and his word at work in us to make us secure in him. Like he will accomplish this in you, brother and sister. You might be here today and you just feel like one big mess up. Like you never get this right. You're never going to get it right. Your walk with Jesus doesn't feel very successful. You know you are his, and today, that's about all you know. You can't ever seem to get ahead. Just a mess. Like we were hanging, all eight of us happened to be together Friday, which is rare these days, unless we take a vacation. Uh, and we were like, let's do something fun. Let's go swimming. Oh, 10,000 gallons of rain are coming down. So we went bowling. And like the sixth frame, we were like, can y'all come put these bumpers up? Because we're terrible at bowling. I mean, pathetic. It's horrible how bad we are. Jennifer won. I, I want to tell you her score, but she beat us all easily. 
And, and sometimes that's how it feels. Like you just, put, I can't even do this right. I need bumpers to help me do something so simple as roll a stupid ball down this wooden lane to these dumb pins. We're all just, the best we can describe ourselves is stumbling forward by his grace. It's okay, Christian. That's how you feel this morning. You are secure in him. As, as lightly as you feel your grip is holding on to him, he has you. He is holding on so tight to you, you can't wiggle free. His grip is eternally strong. Like rest in that. He is going to save you. He's mighty to save. He is strong and able. He's never going to let you go. He loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, even on the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. Even then he will save you. Rest in that. But also know that there is freedom and blessing that comes through obedience, doing the word. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to fill it up with his intended meaning, Matthew 7, 5, 17 says. And Jesus took the weight and the pressure of the Old Testament law and gave it its intended purpose to experience life with God. Jesus came and got rid of the religious rituals and regulations that were essential when God's people were a nation in the pagan Middle East and helps us see what the law was intended to create, a community of God's people in all nations who live so counterculturally that the only explanation for who we are and why we do what we do is we're the people of Jesus. That's what we do. And there's so much freedom in that because we live as God has created and designed us to live. Like there's such a misconception in a country that prides itself in freedom. Freedom is not freedom to do whatever, you, true freedom is not freedom to do whatever you want. Say whatever you want, treat people any way you want. That's not true freedom. Because it's you being the king over your own kingdom, and you're always going to be at war with others and their kingdoms. It's a horrible way to live. True freedom is functioning as God has designed us to function. A fish isn't more free if you take it out of the ocean and you put it in a bird's nest and tell it to fly. The fish is going to die. A chicken is not more free if you throw it in the ocean and tell the chicken to swim. You know, you shouldn't just walk around all the time, chicken. Why don't you enjoy swimming? Chicken's dead. We have a good and wise God who created us with certain guardrails in which we function best operating within those guardrails. And the best explanation for how God has designed us to live with full freedom and blessing is the life of Jesus. Obeying his commands, letting him live through us. Living this out within the community of God's people. Living it out with the one, living out the one another's of scripture, which comes from obeying and doing the word. And then we become this really radical community. We'll actually look more at this next week in verses 26 and 27. And that carries over into chapter 2. It's really the whole book of James. It's really the whole Bible. But the whole book of James specifically describes these really radical ways in which we live. In such a way that the only explanation is Jesus is alive in us, therefore he is on display. He gets to be seen in who we are. It's really amazing. Like this morning, just real quick, think about the best version of, of you as a follower of Jesus. Just imagine this in your mind. Sometimes you may feel this when you, you see someone that you really look up to and the way they walk with Jesus. You're like, gosh, I wish I, I, wish I walked with Jesus like that person did. The best version of you, the, the most cheerful, the most sacrificial, 
the, the most passionate in praying and sharing the gospel. All the gospel-centered side of your Enneagrams is coming to full fruition. fruition. The most fervent and bold in faith. I mean, like, really picture this in your mind. This, the fullest expression of the life of Jesus in you. Like, how would you love and how would you serve and how would you give and how would you go and how would you pray and how would you help and how would you teach? How would you experience the worship of Jesus all the time, the joy of Jesus all the time? Like, think of it in your mind right now. struggle to get there for so many reasons but it's all possible because of his word at work in us so i just want to encourage you to go deeper with this like spend this is your homework assignment share this with your community dna mission community spouse friend whoever what would your life be look like fully obedient to god's word in every area of your life how different is that from your life right now i'm not asking you to actually do it yeah, one day, but right now, just think about it. If I really obeyed Jesus in every area of my life, the ways in which I think he wants me to obey him, what would your life look like? Dream about this. Imagine it. And then talk about, okay, what are next steps to begin to experience this? It's only possible because Jesus is alive in you, but it is possible because Jesus is alive in you. Like, we can get there. We can get there what Jesus wants to accomplish in us. We're going to transition to a time of sharing in the, a meal that represents the body and blood of Jesus, his sacrifice on our behalf. And I want to invite you to share in that meal with us. If you are a repentant, baptized follower of Jesus, it's, the table is open to you. But examine yourself. If like you really love sin more than you love Jesus and you don't want to repent of sin, then I would encourage you not to partake of the table. But if you're like, I hate sin, I want to embrace Jesus again, I want to love him again this morning, please, this is for you. This is who you are. And if this is the first time you've done this as a believer in Jesus, let us know so we can help you follow him. So I'm going to pray, and, and you'll have some time to think and, and process. Uh, our musicians will play uh, during this time of prayer. And when you're ready, come and receive the elements, and then uh, Joseph will lead us in communion. Jesus. We're so thankful that you have done everything necessary for us to have life in you. Yes, we are full of moral filth and prevalent evil, but you came lovingly, willingly to have all the wrath of God poured out on you. You died the death that we deserve to die, and then you rose from the, the, the dead so that we could have life. We could be forgiven. We could be your people. And we need to be reminded of this every single day. Because our flesh constantly is working against us. Our enemy is constantly working against us. This world system that he controls is constantly accusing us and beating us down. We're doing it to ourselves as well. So I pray this morning we, we would once again see ourselves as you see us. As you've made us. As you've created us. As you've called us. As you've named us. Thank you that you have made us your own. So help us to repent and worship you again today. In Jesus' name.